1: if you enjoy listening to the lrb podcast then you'll probably enjoy reading the lrb you can subscribe to the lrb from just one pound per issue to find out more go to lrb.me forward slash listen that's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link in the description below this episode hello and welcome to the london review of books podcast my name is thomas jones this week I'm talking to John Lanchester, who has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on the Suez Canal, the ever-given, container ships that don't run aground, globalisation and much else. It's a review of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula by Lali Khalili. John Lanchester is a contributing editor at the LRB and the author of several books of both fiction and non-fiction, the most recent being the story collection, Reality and Other Stories. And he's also one of the few people to have been on a ship diverted round the Cape of Good Hope because the Suez Canal was closed, although not this year. Hello, John, and thank you very much for joining me.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, perhaps we could begin with, with you telling the story of your own unexpected voyage, how you were, you were nearly trapped in the, in the Suez Canal.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, this was um, when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, and in 1967, we were do a holiday my dad used to do this thing with his employer um you could take i think it was four weeks a year eight weeks every two years or three months every three years holiday it was a sort of legacy of um in fact it was a legacy of the length of the ship journey it, it, working in in East Asia, that it was assumed that you'd be sailing backwards and forwards, so you could take the holiday in these long chunks. So um, the, my childhood holidays were quite memorable because we had one in nineteen sixty seven and next one in nineteen seventy. 1970. In nineteen seventy one, we spent three months living in Australia. But anyway, that was coming up in the summer of sixty seven, and my mum decided to t- you know quote unquote take the boat. You're not you're never ever ever. By the way, first rule of etiquette talking about ships is you never call them boats. And if you are talking to someone who knows about shipping and you call it a boat, and that person's eyes don't roll out the back of their head, they're they're being incredibly polite, or <laughs> they're too annoyed with you to show what they really think because they're they're never boats; they're ships. But anyway, my mum, quote unquote, was to take the boat. Um, I think because she knew that it was on the way out. That by that point, it was already you know it was it had ceased being a norm. I think in. Maybe the fifties, flying sort of took over, and by by sixty-seven, you know, there were very few passenger ships left. And so she booked a thing, and it wasn't a passenger ship; it was a it was a, a ship run by this company, once famous, uh, especially in Asia, called the Ben Line, which is a Scottish line um, that had. They were mainly they were primarily cargo vessels. If you look up photos of them, they're rather elegant. They're kind of long, uh, long, low ships with with cranes on to kind of facilitate rapid loading and unloading and um, so they carried mainly mixed cargo bulk cargo as it's called but they had a small number of passenger cabins i think they had seven or eight passenger cabins and in this case there were 14 passengers on board so we set out i think it was late april 67 with and the plan being to go the normal way which was um, i think one stop set off hong kong one stop maybe mumbai and then through the sears canal through the Straits of Gibraltar to London. and But the day before we were due to go through the Sears Canal, very inconveniently and inconsiderately, Israel launched a six-day war with the huge global consequences, which in many respects are still with us, uh, but also the more immediate consequence that we couldn't get through the route we were meant to. And so the ship stopped, captain radioed for orders, we were stuck there for two days, which I don't remember, but my mum did and said, you yeah, know, it's unbelievably hot because the only thing that kept... Sailing through the Red Sea in May bearable was the movement of the ship keeping the air moving. I mean, it stopped unbelievably hot, oven-like, for two days. And then the orders came to go the long way round, which is around the Cape of Good Hope, which is what we duly did.
1: And meanwhile, there were some ships that were actually trapped in the canal, weren't there, there were 14 ships or something? That
0: There were. I didn't know about that until I was writing this piece. I just started researching it, um, which we narrowly avoided. In those days, by the way, the canal was one way. I didn't get this in the piece because I thought it was long enough but um the canal when it was built was only narrow enough various points of interest it runs north to south so you can't sail through it because prevailing winds go east to west so sailing ships simply don't move so it's dependent on steam technology um and it was also dependent on one-way traffic because it was so narrow so the boats would queue ships would queue (laughs) that was a deliberate mistake the ships would queue um and then you'd get a wave going in convoy North to south, then, and the sailing transit time is about twelve to fourteen hours, depending on the speed of the ship.
1: And the Bosphorus is still like that, isn't it?
0: Really, huh? There can't be many like that. I don't know about the Panama Canal. um Anyway, um go. I think the Ever Given actually couldn't fit through the Panama Canal; it's narrower. So they go one way in convoy, then the other way in convoy. And then in 2015, what happened was that the Egyptians widened, um, they built a parallel canal, which goes for almost the whole length of the journey but there are two sections which are still one way Uh, and it's in one of those that the ever given got stuck it's one of the narrow old bottleneck bits of it so yeah so 67 is one way and there were 14 ships trapped in it and uh, the Egyptian authorities allowed the crews to leave but they have to have a skeleton crew on board the ship to just stop it from rotting away and um, there was this extraordinary parallel kind of community developed on these ships that they would hang out together. They'd have one ship they met on to sort of party, they'd have one ship they met on for religious services, um, they'd have sporting occasions, they'd have movie nights. Um, they felt formed this what they call the Great Bitter Lake Association, a society of all the sailors on the boats. And they issued at one point they issued their own stamps. I mean, it's an extraordinary sort of world of its own uh, that lasted for for eight years, an astonishingly long time. And at the end of it, uh, only two of the ships were actually able to move under their own power. The others had so, the physical condition had so deteriorated that 12 out of the 14 stranded ships had to be towed out of the canal.
1: And what happened to the cargoes? Did they get the cargo off? Or was that left to...
0: That's a really interesting question. I guess they must have taken what they could. Um, yeah. Uh, but I'm bluffing there. I don't, that's a good question which I didn't ask.
1: It's a bit like those I would think the 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 ships that was not that were unable to dock in the last year because of the pandemic, those stories of the that there were ships with crews stuck on them for months and months that weren't allowed to dock anywhere.
0: Tens of thousands of seafarers stuck at sea, and um but, uh, uh, in terms of the the number of people, I think a lot of them were on cruise ships because one of the misleading things about people's contemporary experience of the sea is if they do go to sea, they usually go on a cruise and those those colossal ships are very well staffed there are lots there are thousands of staff on board um the relation, ratio is often like 1 to 2 1 to 3 something like that um whereas commercial vessels have the absolute minimum number of crew so of the i think the initial number was was something like 100,000 seafarers stuck at sea of whom a huge number were on those giant cruise vessels which had to had some of these some of the um, very well publicized and terrible outbreaks of covid mm. right back at the beginning. I think as far as I know I think some of them are still on their ships again doing the same thing stopping them from from rotting.
1: A bit like the um, there's a ship in underworld by Don DeLillo isn't there that it, it's carrying toxic waste I can't remember what's or radioactive waste it has some there's this ship that sort of in the background of that novel but I can't remember remember exactly.
0: Shipping does throw out these odd things. I think uh, Rose George mentions it in her but 90% of everything, that uh, after the 2008 crash, there were um, a bunch of very large ships that were parked in a Scottish lock for, you know, a couple of years, just, you know, waiting, waiting for the world economy to get sufficiently restart for, for them to be put to use. It does go in these spectacular booms and busts, and one of the things that happens in the busts is the problem of what do you do with the ships?
1: Yeah, and as you said, the, the, the eight years is an astonishing I mean, the Ever Given blocked it for what six days, and that had this huge effect on the on the global economy. But obviously, in 1967, the globe was not as globalized as it is now, and and the economies were not so dependent on the amount of shipping there is now or the speed of it.
0: No, that's right. I mean, that's uh, the you know the trend lines have all been in one direction since 67. Um, it did have a big impact, though. I mean, part of the consequence of the now being blocked by the Six Day War and staying blocked um, was that ships obviously had to go around the Cape of Good Hope. Trade between Europe and Asia um, then was going around, you know, around the bottom of Africa. And in when my mother and I did it, you know, there was a a three day storm, which I think is probably the most dramatic weather event I've ever lived through. So I, I just remember it in a few visual images of the boat pitching down at forty five degrees and then back up at forty five degrees. And, you know, that's that's not unusual for the Cape of Good Hope. There's a reason it has that bitterly ironic name. And the logic of it was that ships should get bigger because bigger ships could sail through it more safely and, and more quickly. Um, and both in container ships where size and size is efficiency and in oil uh, vessels got bigger and bigger in the, over that eight-year period, um, first with what they call VLCC, very large crude carriers, which are, Unimaginably colossal oil tankers, and then ULCC, ultra large crew carriers, which are unimaginably colossal times two, uh, you know, some of the biggest man made objects that have ever existed. And so by 75, um, the world had adapted to the closure of the Suez Canal. And one of, the main, one of the main ways it had done that was simply through this thing of size. You know, everything was getting much, much bigger in shipping.
1: Yeah, because of those classes of ship, aren't they? There's the Panamax that's the biggest that can fit through the Panama Canal. And when you get pictures of them, they look as if they're almost inches inches from the edge as they go through the narrow bits.
0: Lord only knows what they're like to pilot because, yeah, it's hard enough parking in uh, in a car that's only just small enough to fill the slot. But heaven knows what it must be like in a thing that's several several hundred metres long.
1: I mean, as with when the Ever Given are getting blocked and more well, blocking the canal than the... Massive amounts of interest that that generated with the memes and that astonishing picture of the tiny-looking digger digging it out, and uh, these are things that we, well, most people, but only notice when they go wrong. That the things you take for granted that you. It also reminded me of the the Icelandic volcano eruption before the current pandemic. That seemed like a big deal that there were no transatlantic flights for however long that for a few days, or when the dover Cali crossing was closed. These things. Or even just when you've got a power cut, or when your internet's down, these things that you only ever we only pay attention to when they go wrong, and then we create a huge fuss and sort of say, why can't you fix it? And then once it's running again, we we forget about it.
0: Yes, a lot of modern civilization, you know, not just the kind of fancy add-ons, but the sort of fundamental structural things, are things that we entirely take for granted and become become invisible. It, it is an interesting think about that maybe it's just a it's unfashionable to talk about human nature but maybe it just is human nature that we grow accustomed very quickly and so things like a power cut seem like I remember I can't remember the last time I'd lived through an extended power cut myself but I have several friends who lived through the New York power cuts a few years ago and and they found that traumatic would be too strong but it was an extraordinary you know very dramatic thing that the extent to which normal life as we conceive it kind of stops water is even more basic i i don't remember the last sort of major water out, outage we had um in a in a major city but you know these things are absolutely uh fundamental and therefore in a paradoxical way so the more fundamental the more invisible yeah you know the more we rely on them the less we see them and shipping's definitely i i think in that category of it's sort of somehow it's very I, I had a half cooked metaphor which I couldn't quite work out how to use but it's like that that Richard Rogers Lloyd's building with the with all the plumbing and wiring on the outside and in a funny way this is you can tell why I didn't actually use the metaphor but there's something about modern <laughs> life where you know the, as it were the wiring is so on the outside that we don't, and, but we're in, we're entirely inside the building so we don't see it.
1: No, I see that I almost but um... And of course, the container is almost the opposite of that because the, the astonishing thing, the thing about a container ships, and as you say in the piece, it meant the old-fashioned kind of port where you'd have stevedores who'd unload the cargo. It's all containers; they're like Lego bricks. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's in them until they they get to their final destination. It's just. I mean, I guess they must. Some of the contents are on the ship's manifest, but you know, you can have the, the captain of that ship with however many hundreds, thousands of containers on it. And he doesn't know what he's what he's transporting.
0: And uh, not only does he not know, he actually doesn't have access to that information. It's a stronger sense of he doesn't know. He 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 can't know. He doesn't know. He the, and the man, you know, the manifest only describes things that are refrigerated because they need to know if those go wrong, if there's a power cut or something, and things that might blow up. Um, and so, if the captain knows about them, but apart from that, you know, he doesn't know if he's got. You know, children's toys, or somebody smuggling, smuggling heroin in, in a box of bricks, or whether he's trading sand. I got rather fascinated by that fact that sand, in terms of bulk, is the world's most traded material. Um, and interestingly, um, it's in Lala Khalili's book, like, sand from the Arabian Peninsula is no good. So the, you know, the place where the place which has all that. Is it for concrete. Yeah, exactly. That's, the, that's the overwhelmingly the use of sand.
1: It has to be eroded by sea.
0: I don't, I don't know. I, I I didn't do a deep dive on, on sandology, but it's quite striking that this is, um, that that's on quite quite a lot of those things. And so, yeah. The and the thing about the the man who um, the central driving force behind behind the creation of the container, Malcolm McLean, American businessman, and the thing he realised was that people who own ships thought they were in the shipping business. People who own trains thought they were in the train business. People who own trucks and trucking companies. And everyone who worked for all of those things thought that they were in the truck business. And he, he, his realization was that actually everybody was in the transportation business. Everybody was in the business of moving stuff. It wasn't the voyage. It wasn't, they were all thinking about how you got from A to B, you know, um, Hamburg to Mumbai. And it wasn't about Hamburg to Mumbai. It was about stuff. And the, Central insight was that thing of making the unit of moving stuff completely fungible, so it could go, it could go from vessel to vessel, to vessel place to place to place, and um, who cares what's in it? Nobody needs to know. You just need to be able to move the, the unit.
1: Because I wrote about that, Mark Levinson's book, of fifteen years ago, and the, the New Statesman mocked me for finding it compelling, and they used it as the basis. And you know, they, they used to have those competitions; you'd have to write two hundred words on some implausible subject, and it was the idea that. The history of the shipping container could be compelling but anyway but it is an, it is an amazing book um but i seem to remember that the vietnam war played a big part in it
0: it's um incredibly important for um military logistics um in general are the driving force in logistics because it's the military that you know you have an immediate advantage in war if you can move things from one place to another more effectively than whoever you're fighting. And military logistics is basically I means sticking stuff stuff on ships. You know, they're, they're, you get those spectacular photos of those, uh, Was it the HC-130, the biggest aircraft in the world, which sort of opens like a colossal, like a whale hoovering up lots of plankton and you see all these men and material pouring on board. But in fact, armies are like everything else. 90% of the stuff they move, they move by sea. And um, the container was was fundamental to the um, US logistic involvement in Vietnam. That's basically how everything got to the theatre of war from from the United States. And it was the um, size and scale and speed of that, the efficiency with which America deployed all those assets, which, you know, I think if you hadn't clocked the significance of containers and their potential before that, I mean, you and if you were in that business, then after the Vietnam War, there was just no mistaking it. Containers were just the way to do it in terms of effectiveness. But Levinson's book—if you I'd forgotten that you reviewed it—and um, the afterwards quite interesting. Now, if you have another look, because basically containers have not only kept getting interesting. You see, you, you, the last laugh is on the statesman, <laughs> uh, because containers are actually quite trendy. You know, you go to somewhere like Shoreditch; everything's in shipping containers.
1: Yeah, we have offices in them you go glamping can't you
0: exactly and there's a kind of i don't know it's a sort of retro futurist chic almost is it is I, I was in um been to christchurch a couple of times since the earthquake in 2012 late 2011 2012 and um when christchurch started rebuilding um uh, after the earthquake it, its city center effectively re- reopened in containers all the and there was something very, very striking about it. I was there first in 2013, and the middle of town—you know, everything, banks, hairdressers, bars—they were all shipping containers instead of this sort of rather striking old Victorian city. And um, I don't know that shipping containers have had this sort of reinvention and afterlife as a kind of, um, as I say, sort of slightly chic urban amenity. It's—it's—they're it's, more visible now than they were.
1: That's a question about them, where they, presumably the numbers of containers that are required, as with the ships, follows the economic cycles. that In a boom, you need more containers and in, in a bust, you have a lot of empty containers.
0: That goes with trade cycles as well there because a lot of the, um, quite a lot of the container vessels, container vessels coming from east to west are full, but containers vessels going the other way around, west to east, are often you know, half empty, nothing but air.
1: There's a question about the, the, um, the Ever Given and that blockage and, the, and those amazing map, the radar maps where you could see all the ships going round the Cape of Good Hope instead. But that delay, I mean, what effect did that have that week of blocking the Suez Canal on the on the global economy? Was it registered in stock
0: markets and shortages? No, not so much in stock markets, I don't think. Um, I think there were... I haven't seen a detailed account of that. I, I imagine... Quite a lot of it is was simply displaced spending. You know, um, I quite want to buy a barbecue. And I've got my eye on a particular one, and it's not in stock. And they keep saying coming soon. And I bet that it was, that's a series, that's an ever given. That's one of the orphans of ever given my particular barbecue. Um, but that's just displaced spending. So it's money I didn't spend in March. But, you know, I hope I'll be spending at some point in April. Um, and I imagine quite a lot of the economic impact. You wouldn't get that many perishables traveling on container ships through the Suez Canal. You know, almost by definition, they're things that are taking a at a minimum a four-week voyage to get from China, which is where a lot of them are coming from, to Europe. So there wouldn't be that many perishables. So there wouldn't, I would have thought, be that much permanently lost economic activity that you you can still go broke though you know if if your business is depending on you know the as it were if you're in say running a garden center and you know you've advertised 50% off everything in March and that's in your budget and you've booked in quarter of a million quid of sales to keep you solvent through March and none of those things have come you 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 know that can still finish it can finish off businesses just that you know few weeks delay Um, but in terms of permanent loss sort of across big economies um I would have thought most of that's recoverable and also there's so much noise and chaos and confusion in the all the economic data because of covid you know it's actually probably hard hard to disaggregate you know the kind of permanent damage from the from the mayhem that's going on anyway
1: yeah I see that because you I mean there are these talk of these the maritime choke points in global trade. There's Suez, there's the Panama Canal, the Strait of Hormuz, the Malacca Strait, I guess the English Channel up to a point. These places Gibraltar, where yeah. yeah, Gibraltar of course, if they get if they get blocked, if they get stopped, you know, that they are security concerns because if you could disrupt maritime traffic through these few narrow choke points, then you can do serious damage to the to the to the global economy. And I wonder if if the Ever Given has confirmed or or disproved that or or neither, really, because it was only a week.
0: Oh, no, I I think, but also, you know, strategists and that kind of um, military and um, global political level are very, very well well aware of that. And um, uh, in terms of the percentage of world trade, I think, you know, at the moment, I think it's 12% by volume, by value goes through Suez. And I think historically, I think, I can't... Got the number off the top of my head but that's certainly lower than its historic peak it's been has been more important than that and you get you know strange things like um even in the 70s and 80s um israel and iran i think it was 70s and 80s maybe it's more israel and iran cooperating on a pipeline out of you know across from iran to the west to reduce the strategic importance that was a, at a point with maximum rhetorical hostility between israel and iran and at the same time behind the scenes, you had cooperation on this project um, you know, designed to reduce the importance of sewers. And that's what the thing about the very large and ultra-large crude carriers, all of that was about being burnt, really, by realisation of just how it had become an arterial route for global trade. And a, a lot of um, effort going into kind of mitigating that.
1: And a focus of, of anxiety, because I was reading because I was reviewing a book about um, mummies' curses a few years ago, and the, the idea that it was only with the opening of the Suez Canal that um, the idea that Egyptian mummies were cursed, that the, that before that there hadn't been any sense of them being a threat or a danger, but somehow because trade and traffic between India and Britain was now dependent on, Suez Canal, on the Suez Canal, that Egypt became this new focus of anxiety. And so the idea of the mummy's curse was arguably connected to that
0: that's it yeah, i didn't come across that and then um so that would be in 1869 and then of course you have Carnarvon digging up Tutankhamun, and then you know everyone dropping dead left and right for 40 years later and then it kind of popularized it again that's really interesting that the idea of egypt as a as a sort of alien threatening other hadn't existed before yeah
1: i mean I, yeah i can't i can't remember who wrote the essay that i'll have to put it at the bottom of the put put it at the bottom of the podcast so we Acknowledge the person who who came up with it, but it's it was very persuasive. And of course, I mean, in turn, and also, in terms of 20th century history, that the Suez Crisis and NASA nationalizing it, and that you know, so I mean, it has this position in the British national psyche. Well, that well, I, I don't believe in that, but in our sort of in cultural life or something, the idea of Suez and crisis are meshed.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, and um, Lala clearly, I think, would argue that not just in the sort of British collective imaginary, but also that the Six-Day War and the closure in 67 did represent a kind of pivot because you have, you know, there's a post-colonial moment really from the end of the Second World War. And I think she would say up until 67. And by the time it now reopens in 75, you know, um, OPEC has launched the, you know, quadrupled the price of oil overnight. And... The kind of petro politics have reasserted themselves in the whole, you know, the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia are, you know, suddenly incredibly important suppliers of oil in a way that's linked to reactionary politics and American global uh, hegemony, economic hegemony. And the kind of post colonial, decolonizing moment has finished. So, and I think a lot of that is linked to that pivot around, around Suez and around the war.
1: And is there any sense in which, the UK joining the EU was connected to that. They're kind of being cut off from the, the Commonwealth by the closure of the Suez
0: Canal. I don't know, I haven't heard that suggested. I mean, I think maybe those currents sort of run in parallel, you know, that um, the theme about, you know, where do we really belong? Do we belong with the Commonwealth or do we belong with our immediate neighbours? Um, I, I don't remember hearing the closure of the Suez Canal linked to that but I suppose it's possible I mean was it when did we join 74 yeah I think so the canal was still shut It'd be interesting if that were true difficult thing to prove of course but these sorts of connections always are
1: I don't know I mean, that only sort of occurred to me just now as, as an idea so what do you say kind of needs further study the, th- the thing about sand just quickly going back to that is I think that the um, it's to do with the shape of the grains that the kind of sand you need to make concrete you, you need it to have sharp edges which you get from sand that's been eroded by water. And sand in the desert, which has been eroded by wind, is smoothed off.
0: Right. It went aggregate in the same we're way. Aggregate, yeah. So aggregates yeah. being the word, isn't it? You see that on the side of things, sands aggregates. Right, that makes sense.
1: I think that's right. And it's one of the things that we're running out that the world is running out of.
0: Yeah. Global sand shortage, it's pretty odd.
1: Yeah. Peak sand. <laughs>
0: Post sand. Um, <laughs> and
1: then the other thing that was. Very much in the news about shipping or threats to shipping a few years ago, and it seems to be less now is piracy and these same choke points where ships were under threat from pirates. But that what Suez was never the Suez Canal. I mean, it was around Aden and Somalia. And-
0: yeah, it's off the coast of Somalia, and there were these. Um, uh, you know, it was a it was a genuine global phenomenon um, and problem um, uh, the pirate attacks, and it took a long time to get to grips with, partly because they're extrajudicial extra waters. And the there was a, a I think, a protected travel corridor, I think it's called, um, which was policed by um, warships from various nations off the coast of Somalia. There was this, you know, notoriously dangerous strip of water. And, yeah, you know, they're still arguing about, there's a narrative about, you know, the, as it were the fishermen, and they were fishermen and the fish ran out. And they switched to piracy. There's an there's a line about actually it being much more organized than that, being a form of sort of organized criminality linked to the collapse of the Somali state. Uh, but it was a very um frightening and dangerous moment for everyone, including the pirates, by the way, who had quite a significantly high mortality rate because it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do, come up in a fast skiff and jump on board a colossal ship whose um height, you know, relative to the water lines, you know, it's like climbing up a three-story building at the time um, with with a grappling hook. And then the crews would be taken hostage and held in really horrible conditions uh, for quite a long time until the ransoms were paid. Um, And it was a genuinely frightening and chaotic period, which was ended, I think, partly by the military action, and partly by the fact that Ships started carrying armed guards, which lots of them wouldn't for a long time because they thought it raised the official line was that it sort of raised the risk. I think maybe there was a they were worried about liability, who knows? But, um, the movie that was made of it, Captain Phillips, which is about I've forgotten the name of the ship, but a ship that was taken hostage by Somali pirates. And at that point, yeah, the, the crew of that weren't armed, they just had poses to sort of try and you know, like water cannon to. Mm. hold the pirates off and uh, again when rose george sailed out to through the canal to um asia uh, again their ship had only hoses and now they're you know fully armed fully tooled up the area is patrolled by navies and it has more or less gone away as a problem but you know it's a it was a real thing i know someone who's killed by somali pirates David david tebbett who was the finance director of my publisher faber and faber and they were on holiday it was on the david knew africa well he'd Worked there for many years, um, and sort of made his own risk assessment. There on holiday in a place in Kenya that's quite near the Somali border, and they, you know, the camp was raided. He was killed, and his wife was taken hostage. So you know, uh, it was a it was a, a dark time for um, that part of Africa, and in, at least in that sense, that problem has, seems to have receded.
1: Yeah, that was awful. I didn't I didn't know that story about them at all. That's really really dreadful, and of course, the Things that they were doing that you obviously couldn't raid the ship and steal the gold, as it were. That it's about no, it's hostage because of contained it's hostage, it's all about hostage, you taking the cruise hostage, and yeah.
0: And and they they would um literally Google who they'd got, they would take people hostage, uh, go back, connect to satellite, and just try and find out what they were worth. And then the ransom process was always a, a sort of set dance because. And families would always be desperate to get it over more quickly. And it didn't work because what would happen is that if you offered too much money too quickly, they would think that the hostage was worth more. And there was a sort of, I mean, it wasn't exactly, you know, sort of swipe the barcode to work out the cost, but there was, it was a sort of a, a length of time that you couldn't shorten and an amount of money that, couldn't really be altered, you know. It was a sort of set process, and I think there was something for the families. I think there was something really horrible about that, about the kind of fact that it basically was a business. But that, I mean, that really stayed with me. That fact that they would literally take, look at the ID, and then go online. Uh, I mean, you know, if you, God forbid, but if you'd been on one of those ships, they would have gone, gone up googled Tom Jones, you know, blah, 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 and just, and they'd literally just try and work out your family's net worth. Mm. And setting the price,
1: but to go back to the, what happened with the that the ever given being wedged in. That's, there's no no one ever tried to do that deliberately, as far as we know. That you wouldn't sort of get on a ship and grab the wheel and block the Suez Canal and hold the world hostage.
0: I've never heard that one come up, but um, yeah, you've got you've got the basis of a decent thriller franchise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Why not? The crews, are, you know, there's almost no crew on the, these ships and um, they're not armed apart from the ones who go through the um, the off the coast of S- Somalia. So, um, you know, they totally would be vulnerable to a thing like that. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that it's not the crew sailing it. They're Egyptian pilots who navigate through the canal. It's like that thing when we we're talking about the Panama Canal, that's not the ship's crew steering it. You know, the age-old practice in shipping is when you get... To a tricky bit of harbour or um, harbour port or a thing like the canal is that you have professional pilots who just do that, who know the water, who work for the local authority in this case the Egyptian government, but are paid for by the ship, often extortionate uh, amounts to um, you know do the do the last bit of navigating and sailing and often docking. So uh, in the case of all you know. All those ships going through Syria have Egyptian pilots um, at the controls,
1: and that's still done by hand. It's not all automatic. Set the GPS and let the computer
0: do it. So, some, you know, you ha- I mean, you have to have someone. You have to have someone at the controls. Not necessarily always the same thing as steering it. Um, it sounds like in the case of this there because there were quite strong winds. Which is what the, they're they're blaming, um, and the surface, the exposed area. I saw I saw a calculation of the physics, and it's because the there's an astonishing area exposed to the force of wind on a ship, the size of the Ever Given, um, you know, four hundred meters long, and height of a five story building.
1: So it's bigger than your average sail.
0: Yeah, it really properly is, and if you have wind blowing very powerfully laterally. Um, you know, almost makes you wonder. I mean, I think the physics of that become challenging for sailing ships that big through a canal and um, do perhaps represent a, a kind of a slightly unexpected physical limit, that it's the lateral risk from wind becomes a problem. And by the way, containers get blown off ships absolutely all the time. You know, there are, um, I think the average loss is in the multiple thousands of containers a year. Simply, you know, fall off in rough weather and in wind. Um, there's the famous one about the rubber ducks, you know, that are used to trace. Which I can't remember where I read it. Apparently, they're not ducks; they were uh, random toys of different types. But everyone, but whenever the story gets written about, it's illustrated by a, with a stock photo of a yellow rubber duck. So that's what's lodged in the memory. But the, the, there was a particular cane, container blew overboard in the noughties and has been used ever since to trap maritime uh, shipping currents as the as the container as the as the contents get sort of blown around the world.
1: Amazing. John Lanchester, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. You can read John Lancaster's piece from the next issue of the LRB online now. The rest of the issue, with Adam Tooze on Paul Krugman, Rivka Galchen on The Brain and Emily Witt on Patricia Lockwood,
0: will be online tomorrow and with subscribers soon afterwards.